0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Tamara Walker. She is an historian, writer, and nonprofit founder. Her new book is titled Beyond the Shores A History of African Americans Abroad. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Hello?
2: Dorothy Stoneman,
1: live in the Boston area, uh, founder of Youth Build, and uh, wanting to change the world a little faster than we're currently doing it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Fox, uh, living in Spain now, originally from Chicago. Uh, after years of teaching sociology, I'm now writing fiction here in Spain. Bill Collins, grew up in the Boston area, Harvard 63, Navy, ended up in Aiken, South Carolina, to help clean up nuclear waste at the Savannah River site, now <clears throat> retired from that. Okay, Peter. Hey, Pete Uh after Harvard, I worked with SNCC for a couple of years in South Georgia for Charlie Sherrod, and I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire, near the Canadian border, And, of course, it's overwhelmingly white up here. But uh, in my town, among the wealthiest and most prominent citizens are a black couple, African-American couple, who, uh, among their other properties they own in town, are an old motel from the 1950s, which they've entirely refurbished, just like it was in the 1950s, one of these one-story motels, They have live music. There's a sort of the center of nightlife in this little <laughs> town up in northern New Hampshire. And she's a playwright, and he's a pilot for American Airlines.
1: Oh,
2: that's
0: interesting! Wow,
2: uh, Jerry. Good morning, uh, Jerry
1: Secundi, Pasadena, California, environmental lawyer, and <laughs> starting to really panic about the 2024 election. <laughs> <laughs> Ron. Uh, Ron Blau, Class 63, worked in TV and video all my life, still doing a little bit of video, a little freelance writing, trying to help Dorothy change the world, you know, a little bit faster, (laughs) including working on the election of
3: 2024.
0: Okay. Mm. Uh, Cindy, Allison.
3: Hi. Yes. uh, Class of 63, Allison Wardle. I'm called Cindy. Um, I live in a small town in Tuscany. Um, Peace Corps after uh, after college, and um, that's about it.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, John Woodford.
3: Oh. hi, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been a writer and editor for most of my working life.
0: Okay, <laughs> David Othmer.
1: David Othmer, also 63. Worked work primarily all, all my life, uh, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Brazil. Uh, yeah, and now I live in Philadelphia.
4: Okay, and Hi, I'm uh, Anne Huberman. I'm a uh, class of 63, and I'm right now in Greenfield, where our summer camp is. And it's nice and warm. And I'm a retired academic librarian and a climate activist in, in Peterborough, where my main residence is.
2: Uh, Alden Briscoe, um, grew up in the East Coast, but now live in uh, just south of San Francisco, and my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm profits, and I'm probably going to have to leave off this call in a few minutes to go to a client. Okay, <laughs> all right. Liz. Hi, I'm Liz um originally from California. I've been in Maryland for about 17 years now, and Hamp and I have an ongoing discussion about whether one is or is not a retired clinical psychologist, and I'm also class of 63.
0: Okay, and Nick, how are you? Good to see you.
1: Nice to see you all again. Uh, Nick Bancroft, Medfield Mass, outside of Boston, class of 63, uh, Harvard Business School, and directly into the Peace Corps, India, two years um, developing, helping develop uh, small industries there. And uh, investments in Boston, trust, wills, estates, all those fascinating things. <laughs> Retired. Okay, George.
2: George Jones, also in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And if the weather clears up, today is going to be motorcycle washing day for John. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: good,
0: good, good. George, George Allen. Hi there.
2: Uh, Hi. I'm uh, another uh, lawyer. Uh, trying to retire, uh, not very successfully. Uh, live now in Los Angeles, uh, uh, sort of across the uh, metro area from uh, Jerry Secundi's over in Pasadena. I'm uh, uh, close to the west side in L.A.
0: Okay, and uh, Richard,
2: how are you? Okay, good to be with you. Uh, 63, of course, um, a journalist, writer. Also uh, not very successfully trying to figure out how to retire, (laughs) which is why I may have to leave this early.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. And uh, Ham.
2: Um, 63. uh, Not not too clinical, but a a psychologist, psychotherapist, uh, wondering if I can diagnose several of us as having retirement panic. (laughs) <laughs> and choking on John's cigar. <laughs>
0: hey. And um, Professor Walker, thank you so much for joining us and uh, welcome and uh, tell us about your life, your book, and we'll go from there.
4: Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation to, to join me, to join you today. Um, and thank you all for, for coming. It was so nice to hear your your introductions um, and just to hear what a diverse group you are and how spread out you are in different parts of the world that I know well. I grew up in Colorado um, as part of a family that originated in Alabama, but my grandparents, um, traveled a lot because of my grandpa's army service. That story ends up being a big part of my book Beyond the Shores um, and my own discovery of the, the power and beauty of travel. I, when I was in high school, was able to travel to to Mexico and to France through a program offered by my private school, which I attended as a scholarship student. And those were experiences that really set the course of my life and got me interested in Spanish language and culture, French language and culture, and just the idea of having the kind of global element of my education be something that I continued to pursue. Um, So when I went to college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania for my undergrad and majored in Spanish and history and went with the idea of studying abroad. I studied abroad in Argentina and had a really complicated experience that for me was really intellectually edifying. Um, It was the reason I became an historian of Latin America. I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, to get a PhD in Latin American history with the initial intention of focusing on Argentina. But in the end, I ended up focusing on Peru. And I wrote a book on slavery and dress in colonial Peru that came out in 2017. And after I finished writing that book, I was just really interested in doing something a bit more reflective and cathartic, Um, actually. Like it was a book that I wrote um, as part of the kind of, requirements for getting tenure. And that was a stressful process and one that I just really wanted to kind of decompress from. And I'd been carrying around this idea to write and think about the experiences of African Americans abroad, not only from a personal perspective in terms of myself and my family, but also a larger historical perspective to really think about how my story fit within a larger story that ultimately, in the book, spanned from the 1920s to the present day. And so I chronicle what I call a century of people on the move. And the book is structured um, in a unique way, where the narrative spine of the book spans from the 1920s to the present. And in each narrative chapter, I kind of take a look at a person or pair Mm -hmm. of people in a location or pair of locations that really exemplify what was at stake for African-Americans during these various decades of the 20th and 21st century, what were the factors that sent them to other parts of the world and what was going on in these other parts of the world that made them beckon to African-Americans and appealing to African-Americans. And so I tried in the process of writing that book to spotlight familiar people in less familiar places. So for example, I have a chapter on Richard Wright in Argentina in the 1950s. He spent time there as he was writing the script and filming um the the black and white version of native son in argentina and the story there is kind of connected to the story of the post world war ii era and the marshall plan which put limitations on where he could film a movie like this and so he ends up in argentina and i was trying to kind of do a couple things with that chapter and i can say more about it during the Q&A. But one of the things I was interested in was the fact that Richard Wright spoke so much and wrote so much about his life in Paris and Buenos Aires, where he ended up spending time for the film, was known as and continues, continues to be known as the Paris of the Americas. And so I just thought that it was interesting to think about these two Parises in his life and the fact that The Paris of the Americas is one that he spoke and wrote a lot less about. And in fact, it was hard to find any writings about his time there. And so I just wanted to kind of dig a little bit more into what was going on during that time, both personally and professionally that made it such a kind of dark spot in more ways than one in his life. Um, I also wanted to spotlight lesser known people And lesser known places. And so, for the former Peace Corps volunteers, I ended up writing a chapter about a man named Herman DeBose who served in the Peace Corps in Kenya. And I just thought that the era in which he served in the Peace Corps, the late 60s, early 70s, was a particularly compelling moment to focus on, both in U.S. history and in African history, because he was a student at North Carolina AT during a really (laughs) crucial moment in his life and in that school's history and in U.S. history, and was thinking about serving and really representing the US during this moment in time that a lot of people were were disinclined to want to serve and represent the US. Um, and then he goes to decolonial or decolonizing Africa. And I thought that was an interesting moment in history to explore. And so those are some of the people I focused on in the book. And I really just wanted to kind of tell a story about multiple people in multiple places to craft as complete a picture as possible of the experiences of African-Americans experiencing life on other shores and in the process tell a story about the US as well. Um, And then in between all of that, I weave in my own family story and my own personal story to really ground it in the personal motivations that led me to write the book in the first place. So that is, I think a good starting point for a conversation I hope about the process of writing the book, researching the book, the stories I tell in the book, I'm happy to answer questions on any of those fronts or whatever comes to mind for you
2: how about your own experiences abroad and and your uh, family's experience and your experience of your family then
4: yeah so I um think there's two kind of moments in my life that were really kind of crucial to telling the story of this book one was a trip I never got to take um I went to this private school that I went to two different private schools growing up, one from kindergarten to ninth grade and the other from 10th to 12th grade. And my ninth grade class, I went to um, school in the 90s. So it was the Cold War era. It was the era when we just got to be a little little more adventurous in terms of the kinds of curriculum that we were exploring. And so I had a teacher at the school who was kind of a Russophile. He had studied abroad in Moscow and taught a year long course on Russian history and culture. And at some point during the semester, um, he offers up the chance for us to go to Russia. But because I was at the school on scholarship, I was unable to afford it. They didn't offer scholarships for this trip. So it really loomed large in my life as this missed opportunity. Um, And it was also a moment in my life where I received a book that, from my same Russian teacher and I'll I'll hold it up because it's right next to me because it means so much to me and really shaped my writing and my thinking. So it's a book called Soul to Soul and it's the story of a Black Russian-American family um, and it spans from 1865 to 1992. The book came out in 1992 by a woman named Yelena Kanga, and I got the book from the same Russian teacher um, because I had received an award in ninth grade and so he wrote an inscription in the book that, for me the connection that he saw between this woman's story and my own life story and in many ways what he saw is kind of parallels in our lives were racial in the sense that she grew up in this predominantly white environment and I was attending school in a predominantly white environment but it turned out years later when I finally got the chance to read the book um well after graduating from that school that there were other connections between us um that I end up writing about in the book. So I know I've spent a lot of time talking about a trip I didn't take, but it was one that was really crucial to the the process of writing the book into my own formation and my own desire to travel. Um, I finally got the chance to travel a couple years later when I went to Mexico um, with my high school Spanish teacher, who was one of the best teachers I ever had and created for us this really incredible experience. We spent the first week with the host family And the second week at an orphanage and it was my first experience of um, travel for one but also my first experience of this sort of service tourism and alternate spring break travel that really took root i think in the 1990s and persists to this day i think in a more nefarious form um, in the present day but I just had a real opportunity to think about my own privilege as an American in terms of being able to have this two week experience um, and to spend time at this orphanage where the children who lived there had either been removed from their families or abandoned by their families. Their stories were were really complex. Um, But it was also a, a moment where I reckoned with being Black and American as well. And so that's an experience that really kind of brought to the surface all of the issues that I would contend with over the course of my life across different kind of geographic contexts. And it really put me in the mindset, I think, that ultimately led to to writing this book. It was both this exhilarating experience, this alienating experience, this edifying experience, and it's something that I, when I was writing Beyond the Shores, wanted to tap back into to just kind of remember what it was like for me to travel, but also to imagine the perspectives of some of the historical subjects that I wrote about in the book who didn't always leave letters behind or write first-person accounts of their travel experiences, but some of them traveled at certain ages that were familiar to me that I felt like I could tap into one of the people I write about, for example, is a woman named Philippa Schuyler, who was a piano prodigy and traveled around the world, starting at a really young age. I think she was around eight years old when she first started traveling. And eventually the older she got, the more sophisticated she got, the more mature she got, she was able to travel by herself. And I just really connected to the ways that she moved through the world and the, the, Kind of excitement that she was able to to kind of carry with her throughout her travels and she's someone who did write quite a lot about um her perspective of of the world and i was able to read her letters and read a book that she wrote um, but for other people i didn't necessarily have that information to draw from so it was really important to kind of tap back into my own experience to try to recreate some of the emotions associated with travel that I, I write about in the book, um, to the extent that's possible and without universalizing my my own specific experiences. But um, those were really kind of formative moments in my life that really helped to frame the book and my approach to, to writing it.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Didn't Joe? she become a Bircher? Philippa Duke, Schuyler, Philippa Duke Schuyler. Didn't she become a John Birch Society champion? Her
4: father, her father did. Yeah, yeah. she did not, and she... Um, and one of the things I end up writing in the book is that, you know, there's this tragedy at the heart of her story and in many ways at the heart of her father's story um, in that she dies at an early age. She dies um, at just 36 years old and her father ends up becoming more conservative over the course of his life. Um, mm-hmm. Philippa's mother, Josephine, ends up taking her own life a couple years later and she writes a, a note that says that you know she does that because she can't imagine life without her daughter and you can kind of chart her her father's um really kind of turn towards these more conservative more hardline politics culminating in his membership in the john birch society um and so i i think those stories are, are connected in, in really interesting ways um, mm-hmm. and again that's not related to travel but it is part of the story that i end up telling in the book this family story and the story about Um, This couple that was trying to do the best they could under the circumstances that they were living in in the 1930s when Philippa was born, and they were an interracial couple for folks who aren't familiar with them. He was Black and she was um, white, and they attempted living in New York and in other parts of the world to, to really... Kind of give their daughter the best opportunities they, they possibly could. And she was a real testament to that over the course of her life and travels. Um, and again, her life was cut short, really tragically, um, which I, which I end up writing about in the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Jerry.
1: Uh, let me take you back to your other book. Uh, I spent two years in in Cusco, Peru, mm-hmm. and then in the 70s and 80s, went back as a lawyer-slash-businessman for many, many trips. Why did you pick on Peru of all the countries? And what was what was the theme of your book?
4: Yeah, so the, um, the book is called Exquisite Slaves and the subtitle is Race, Clothing and Status and Colonial Peru. And it depends on how far back you wanna start the story but I suppose I can start the story of how I came to study Peru um, by talking about travel again because I, when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, One of my professors took us to the Clements Library. I don't know, John and George, if you're familiar with the the Clements Library, but it's an Mm -hmm. incredible building and resource, and it's filled with all kinds of printed and unpublished manuscripts. And I encountered one that was written by a woman named Ida Pfeiffer, who took a journey around the world in the 1850s, including to Peru. And she wrote in a really interesting and disturbing way about the so-called milk and fruit women that she encountered, women of African and indigenous ancestry, who she described as wearing, you know, silks and laces, and ultimately in her opinion, looking like pigs with gold necklaces. And there just was this passage that stuck with me for a really long time and just posed all kinds of questions for me. What, who were these women? How did they acquire the clothing that they were wearing? how did they feel about how they dressed? And how did that compare? Or how was that at odds with how they were being described by this European woman, Ida Pfeiffer was from Austria and set out to these different parts of the world. And so it was this travel account that really set me on the course to write a dissertation about slavery and dress in colonial Peru. Um, I hadn't been explicitly interested in Peru. Um, I grew up as I mentioned in Colorado and I went to high school with some guys whose family owned a Peruvian restaurant. Um, And at one point I had bartended at that restaurant. So Peru was on my mind. I bartended at the restaurant right before I was set to go study abroad in Argentina. And the joke was always that I was going to the wrong place and they didn't understand. And it was kind of just a window into some of these rivalries between different people and places in South America. And they just were so convinced that I should have gone to Peru instead of to Argentina. And so I had some of that in the back of my mind and I was like, well, maybe I could take the opportunity to learn more about this place. The people who I worked with at the restaurant would bring me videos and make reference to Peru having a history of slavery and a block, a black population. And so those were things that were becoming interesting to me. Um, and the interesting clothing was sort of connected to the same restaurant experience where we had to wear a uniform and it felt like this sort of forced experience of androgyny and, um, Having to kind of conform to, to certain expectations that I felt stripped me of my individuality, and by no means does that compare to the experience of enslavement. But again, it just put me in a, a particular headspace that helped to shape a lot of the questions that I ended up asking in in that book. Um, and I kind of see *Exquisite Slaves* as as being an important precursor to *Beyond the Shores* because they just one that taught me how to write a book and how to conduct research. Um, But it also just left me wanting to do a bit more introspection in the way that I got to do with Beyond the Shores and kind of think about my own travel experiences and how they were connected, again, to this larger history, but also to my own kind of intellectual formation.
0: Thank you. Is uh, most of the book sort of escaping racism or is it a combination of both or how, how does that work?
4: Yeah, so it's a combination of things. So I think the early chapters of the book that focus on the 1920s, 30s and 40s really are about escaping racism. So I write in the 1920s chapter about a woman named Florence Mills who was often compared to Josephine Baker um, and found herself in a similar situation having reached the limit of her possibilities when she was on the vaudeville circuit in off-Broadway circuit here in the US and here in New York City. And so she had an opportunity to take one of her shows on the road. This pr- production called Blackbirds, that was staged in Paris and later in London. So that chapter is about both Paris and London. Um, and she was just trying to break out of the confines that black performers in the nineteen twenties were were stuck in. And the reason I chose her was in part because she was often compared to Josephine Baker and so it brings in this familiar name but reminds us that there were more people than just these familiar now household names Um, and then there's also another tragedy that's contained within her story because she dies at an early age before she's able to reach the career heights that Josephine Baker did and that's why Josephine Baker is a household name because she lived to be able to make films and to get involved in the French resistance and to just become a representative both of the U.S. and of, of France, um, but there were other people who didn't get to reach those heights for for various reasons. Um, I talk in the 1930s chapter about this pair of agronomists, Oliver Golden, who was the, the grandfather of Elena Conga, um, and Joseph Rowan, who both studied at Tuskegee and were experts in cotton cultivation and were invited by the Soviet Union to help head up. Um, An initiative in Uzbekistan to help bring their expertise in cotton cultivation to this region that was in sore need of their expertise and. So in that sense, these men were, were fleeing US racism in the sense that they were working, they were both working as Pullman porters because they were not able to use their expertise in the US. And that in itself is really ironic because it was during the era of the Great Depression when their knowledge of crop cultivation would have been essential in the US to helping feed people who were were starving. But because of the the nature of US racism, um, they were relegated to working as, as Pullman porters. And so they have this opportunity in going to the Soviet Union to work in the fields in which they were trained and to have the kind of recognition that they, they deserved for their expertise. And so they had teams of local Soviet employees working under them. And so that was both something that, that was a situation where they were fleeing from something, but also going towards something, going towards this really rich, exciting opportunity. Um, but then by the time you get to the, the 70s and 80s, you've got the Peace Corps volunteer who is just thinking about a world outside of the one that he knew <laughs> and thinking about adventure and possibility. Um, he hadn't set his sights on Kenya for any particular reason. It just happened to be the region that he was assigned. And I think the Peace Corps volunteers here um, can speak to that better than I can, that you don't always get to, to choose where you, where you go. But he happened to um, land in a place that was really just kind of exciting on its own terms in terms of the era of decolonization in Africa. And what that meant for him was this opportunity to kind of witness a continent in complete transformation. And so that wasn't necessarily about leaving U.S. racism, but experiencing the world as it was changing and witnessing history in the making. And then I've got another chapter about a man named Kim Bass, who I knew before I started writing the book because he was the writer of the TV show Sister, Sister, and he ends up, before starting his Hollywood career, and the reason he's able to start his Hollywood career is because he spent several years in Tokyo where he was learning Japanese and taking Taekwondo classes and starring in TV and film productions because he happened to be in the right place at the right time and someone who spoke enough Japanese to get cast in TV shows and films where he could speak Japanese. and. of why i was so drawn to his story is because this is just a story and i remember when i was writing the chapter my editor was like we don't really have a struggle here we don't really have a a a set of challenges for him to overcome and i was like that's exactly the point in my mind that here's an opportunity for someone to just be this sort of dilettante like he you know went to study japanese and then like dipped into acting dipped into Mm -hmm. taekwondo it just was having a good time. He was also a performer at um, Tokyo Disney, where he would wear an afro and like a sequin suit. And like if the party started on the dance floor, where people were a little too shy to start dancing themselves. And it just sounded so fun. And there was nothing about that that was about, again, like fleeing racism, fleeing persecution, or exclusion, but he was, he was just trying to find himself and have a good time in the process. And I wanted to capture that in the book as well. So I think there's a spectrum of stories that the book tells that speaks to the spectrum of the experience of being Black in the US, and in the process of learning what it's like to be Black in other parts of the world, which is something I, I touch on, not in every chapter, but in, in a lot of the chapters as well. Liz.
0: Uh,
2: yeah, um, I'm wondering, what was really surprising to you? What 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 did you go into the book with that you had absolutely no idea about, and then it kind of, ah, what's this?
4: Yeah, I think um, I had gone in with this really romantic notion of what life in places outside the U.S. was going to be like. Um, And early on, I understood that the story I was telling in the book was also going to be a, a, a tragedy as well. Both the tragedy of this country that, so many of the people who I write about really loved and wanted to make their lives and homes in um, and really hesitated to leave. So one of the agronomists that I write about, Joseph Rowan, was really nervous to go all the way to Uzbekistan, a place he had never heard of, much less seen. Oliver Golden, on the other hand, had spent time in Moscow um, and wanted to return. So he had at least some sense of what to expect just living under the Soviets. But Joseph Rowan had no idea and he was married um, to a school teacher, his wife, Sadie, who was hesitant to leave. She wasn't going to be working with this um, group of agronomists. She was going to be making a life for um, herself, her husband, and their soon-to-be son. They had a son who was born in um, Uzbekistan who was named Joseph Stalin Rowan because he was the first Black child born in the Soviet Union, or born in Uzbekistan, and the hospital employees were so thrilled at the prospect that they wanted to christen him Joseph Stalin. Um, and so there were just so many moments like that that I just sound really interesting, um, both the, the, the excitement of travel, yes, but also the, the ambivalence around it, that so many of the people who I write about felt that, you know, if it were up to them and it took Rowan convincing, like Oliver Golden had to kind of wage a letter writing campaign to get Joseph Rowan and other agronomists on board because their position was, why should we have to leave? This is our country. We've studied here. We know the soil here, right? Like quite literally what is going to happen to us in this place that we know nothing about and- Maybe it's going to be just as bad as this place that we're leaving behind. And at least here in the U.S., we have our ways to navigate. We've got our banks, we've got our schools, we've got our community structures in place. But what will it be like to leave all of that behind? And so I think I was surprised by just that degree of nuance that emerged over the course of conducting these interviews and just conducting my own investigations. Um, And then with people like Florence Mills and Philippa Schuyler, who, who died at an early age, it it just kind of grounded the story in in these individual tragedies and so it really reminded me not to kind of cast these other parts of the world and these stories as wholly romantic a lot of them did involve romance and adventure and even philippa schuyler wrote a lot about just her her kind of encounters and flirtations. and she met someone who she was falling deeply in love with right in the final weeks of her life um so there is all of that. But I think I was surprised by how by how sad I was actually when I was writing the book. And I guess the other thing I'll say is that I was surprised by how much I changed over the course of writing the book. So I just got back to the U.S. Um, last year after living for five years in Canada. And that was just because of the nature of the academic job market. I got a job at the University of Toronto in the history department teaching colonial Latin American history. And the timing was such that I, I missed the, you know, the, the last presidency. Um, But the timing was also such that people would frequently kind of not even ask, but just kind of insist that I, I must be so much happier in Canada than in the U S and I was writing this book at the time and realizing that I was feeling the same sense of longing for home that the people I wrote about were feeling. And so there became this kind of other thread in my own life that kind of unschooled, which was this desire to get back to the US. Um, I had kind of envisioned by the time the book came out that I'd be talking from the perspective of an expat, like not someone living overseas, but just across the the Northern border. But I, I didn't expect to, to end up back in the US, but the the timing and the kind of journey I underwent was such that I ended up back here. And that's the story that so many of the people I write about end up experiencing too it's not that they go abroad and never look back so many people are like well the us is my country too it belongs to me too and i quote paul robeson making a similar point in the book and so there was something that was really profound about my own journey over the course of writing the book that that i hadn't expected to to experience john
3: oh hi uh george schuyler philippa duke schuyler's father is the author of a very fascinating sort of sci-fi satire called uh, Black No More in which some uh, uh, black guys figure out a way to turn black people white. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite an interesting book. I wondered if you uh, also looked at the communities that organized in Ghana in the 60s. There were a number of black Americans. They tried to, they, they set up a group Art, art, artists mainly, but uh, they went to Ghana. And um, some of them have stayed there. Did you run to them?
4: I didn't end up um, reading too much about them um, or writing about them. And, you know, one of the things I realized in structuring the book the way that I did was that I was going to kind of overlook big places and big stories and important people in the process, but what I tried to do to kind of reconcile that was to point to regions that had a lot going on during a particular moment in time. So the continent of Africa in the 1970s and 1980s loomed large for African-Americans in, in particular. And so in talking about Herman DeBose, the Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, I was trying to gesture towards mm. some of that, um, but I wasn't able to to touch on this that specific story. That being said, one of the um, threads that kind of runs through my book is the fact that the Black press, meaning Black newspapers, like the Chicago Defender, the New York Amsterdam News, and even Black magazines like Ebony Magazine and Jet Mm -hmm. Magazine were always on the case when it came to African-Americans abroad. They were always the first people kind of reporting on these entertainers going to Paris in the 1920s. And they were always kind of commenting on the kinds of experiences that those performers were having on stage and off. And so they were the kind of first travel writers that were making these other parts of the world, Paris and, and London, for example, appealing to African-Americans and not only writing about the shows they could take in but the plays that they could go see and the museums and cathedrals they could check out. And later in the 20th century, Ebony Magazine was doing similar things for covering Africa. And so there was a really interesting story in um, Ebony Magazine in the late 70s where they um, followed this grandmother, her name was um, Gwendolyn Hughes, who goes to Ghana to retrace her family's footsteps. It's kind of in the post Alex Haley's roots um, era. And Mm -hmm. so they were just kind of following a lot of these experiences of African-Americans who were returning home, whether that meant for visits or for for longer stays. And so Ebony, I'm sure I didn't, um, I can't say for certain that Ebony had written about that, but I wouldn't have been surprised because that was just such a a consistent thread that ran through their their coverage. It was a global publication and I don't think it always gets very much credit for that. but it, it's always been a really global publication. And I learned about so many of the people I ended up writing about via Ebony. Um, but I thought that was really interesting that kind of decade by decade in those publications, you can kind of see which regions are looming large. And certainly in the 1970s and 1980s, Africa is really looming large in, in Ebony's coverage. Um, and that's also because of the Black Power Movement in the United States, Pan-Africanism as it's emerging in the United States and other parts of the world. And so it's an interesting window onto that. but. That particular story, I'm I'm not as familiar with, but I at least try to gesture towards. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Ronnie, Ron.
1: Is there a, a kind of major arc or sweep that runs through the book so that the people in the different chapters are kind of emblematic of what's going on at a particular moment, or is it mostly individual stories?
4: Yeah, so each decade is kind of a story about what's happening in the U.S., Um, And so, you know, I talk about the depression in the 1930s. Um, I talk about the World War II era in the 1940s. And so what was happening to send people like my grandfather to fight for the U.S. And I write about my grandfather serving um, in France and losing his eye at Normandy Beach. Um, And then with the Richard Wright chapter, I'm talking about the Marshall Plan, the U.S.'s attempt to, you know, instill democracy in Europe and represent itself as this beacon of democracy abroad. But what it does is kind of tie accepting U.S. funding to accepting U.S. kind of politics. And that's why Richard Wright couldn't film a movie like Native Son in France, where he lived, because France was accepting funding from the United States and didn't want to be perceived as being critical of the United States. And that book is very critical of US racism. Um, And so he had to go all the way to Argentina to film it. And so in each decade, I am kind of telling a story about what's happening in the United States to send African Americans to these other parts of the world, while at the same time talking talking about what's happening in other parts of the world to make them outreach to African-Americans or be appealing to African-Americans. So that's why I talk about the Soviets in the 1930s and just the Cold War era more generally in terms of what it what's happening with um, the Soviet Union to make them reach out to African-Americans in often deeply cynical and politicized ways where African-Americans were being used as cudgels by the Soviet Union to be critical of the United States. And so what position does that put African-Americans in to kind of be caught between these competing forces and how can they carve out their own bit of self-determination and happiness and recognition of that. Um, And then the larger arc is a bit more um, abstract in the sense that I start in the 1920s and I end in the present day and I start and end in Paris and I start with Florence Mills and, her contemporaries, and I end on a tour by a company called Black Paris Tours that retraces the steps of Florence Mills and their contemporaries Mm -hmm. through the various parts of Paris where they spent their time in the 1920s. And so it allows for me to tell a story about the the kind of homage that contemporary (laughs) tourists can and, and wish to pay. And the woman who runs the tour company is a woman named Ricky Stevenson who grew up in Oakland, California, hearing about Josephine Baker and James Baldwin, always wanting to go to France. Her mother always wanted to go to France. So in the 90s, she decided to move to France and became this sort of expert for her friends and family who were visiting and decided to kind of expand so that she could take people on a tour of this part of Paris that she knew really well, but that tourists were kind of struggling to to figure out how to navigate. And so those are the bookends to just kind of emphasize so many contemporary African American travelers are trying to retrace the steps of the people who came before them. And then I also use that to talk about my own family experience because my um, grandfather following World War II was stationed in Salzburg, Austria with my grandmother and their two oldest children. They had two more children while they were there. And around the same time that I did this tour, I also traveled with my family to Salzburg with my aunt, who's the only living relative now. and we were basically doing our own version of a, a you know Black Salzburg tour in terms of just trying to retrace the steps of my grandparents who who came before us and to just try to see what they saw and smell what they smelled and feel what they they felt. And so it's both a story about the US and African American relationship to it and African Americans' relationship to and position in the wider world, but also a family story and a story of community and reflection and and recognition, right? Especially in ways that the story itself of African-Americans going abroad isn't one that's deeply recognized. And so all of that is kind of folded into the, the structure and narrative of the book. Mm-hmm. George.
0: So I'm interested in your the comments you made a few minutes ago about your experiences in Canada and wanting to come back. I lived in Vancouver for about three years. And if I could have mm-hmm. stayed, I'd be there now.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: What made you want to come back to the U.S.? <laughs>
4: Yeah. I mean, and I still am a bit ambivalent about the decision to return. Um, I had a great life in Toronto. I had great colleagues and friends and community. Um, and I don't know that under different circumstances, I would have made the the same decision. A couple of things kind of converged to the summer of 2020. Um, there was also the pandemic, which made the the border feel even more pronounced than it ever had um, from Colorado. <laughs> and it's a three hour flight from Toronto to Denver and a three hour flight from New York to Denver. So it's pretty equidistant, but conceptually it fell a lot further away um, during the pandemic and we were unable to leave Canada. Um, and so it made the fact that my family was on the other side of the border um, feel really heavy and my husband's also from Colorado. So, and we're getting older, our parents are getting older. So it just made the fact that we had this border between us that was a real thing and more pronounced over the pandemic um, feel like something I had to get on the other side of. Um, And then there was just a moment in my career that kind of was happening where I was thinking about um, beyond, you know, checking certain things off the list in terms of getting tenure and publishing books, what my sense of purpose was in my career. And one of the programs that I was able to participate in when I was an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania was the Mellon, at the time it was called the Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship. It's since been renamed the Mellon Mays University Fellowship, but the purpose of that fellowship is to create opportunities to diversify higher education. And to create opportunities for students of color, first-generation students to get the research experience and the mentoring to apply to and succeed in graduate programs and ultimately to join the professoriate. And it was a program that allowed me to do research while I was in Argentina and to get support while I was a graduate student. And it just, I wouldn't have the life and career that I have without the Mellon program. And I really wanted to be back at an institution that had a Mellon program. The University of Toronto did not. Um, And so it happened at the same time that this job that I now have um, was being advertised and it just landed in the right time in my life for me to at least throw my hat in the ring. Um, And I figured I would see what happened and here we are. But Toronto is a, a wonderful wonderful place, um, but also a complicated place because I think, you know, it It tends to see itself as more evolved um, in many ways than the United States, which in many ways is true, but it also allows it to ignore its own problems because the United States, especially in the past five years, got to loom so large as the, the messier <laughs> of the North American countries and the more troubled Um, And it let Canada and Canada let itself off the hook in ways that um, I think adds to the complexity, but it was a a big change. It remains a big change. And I was able to do a book event in Toronto um, a couple of weeks ago and had wonderful turnout with wonderful friends who I I still miss very much. So it wasn't an easy decision. And it's still one that I, I wonder about one of the things that I I realized you know, pretty early on was that in being able to attend private school, I was able to develop cross-cultural skills, language skills that then made me legible. I went to Peru on a, a Fulbright and I remember having this experience um, during a gathering of all the Fulbrights who were from around the Andean region and they had all assembled in, in Lima. And I looked around this room that was filled with representatives of the the work that the Fulbright organization seeks to support. And I was the only black person. And I happened to be seated next to one of the representatives from the organization and raised that point. And one of the things that she was saying was that there was essentially what she was saying boiled down to there being a pipeline problem. And that there were a lot of applicants who didn't have the language skills um, to carry out these research projects and didn't have the research skills to carry out these projects and I had been studying Spanish since seventh grade and had gone to Mexico had by that point studied abroad in Argentina and I because of the Mellon program had been able to do research and so it made me a viable candidate for a Fulbright in ways that I understood were a result of these (laughs) privileges that I'd had along the way and so Out of that came this idea for my nonprofit, it's called The Wandering Scholar. And basically what we do is create opportunities for high school students to have Fulbright-like experiences. Um, We kind of jokingly call them baby Fulbrights because the students get these opportunities. Um, We provide funding for them to travel for two to four weeks to different parts of the world. And they go on programs that are operated by our partners. Um, And because so many of the kind of teen travel programs are service oriented, we have this kind of additional program that we provide our students with prior to the trip while they're on the trip and once they return from the trip to do research so they're not just going to these host countries and treating them as you know places in need of their help as teenagers building parks and you know digging for fences but instead they can think of these places as sites of knowledge and in the process develop research skills and language skills that will serve them and We sent our first students to Costa Rica in 2010. And since then, we've had students who have studied abroad in India after having these early experiences and studied Arabic in college and have graduated and gone on to pursue graduate study. And it's precisely because they had these opportunities at key points in their life in the same way I had these opportunities at key points in, in my life to travel that would ultimately kind of alter or set the course of their lives um, and make them more legible, you know, according to the the frameworks that organizations like the Fulbright and even the Peace Corps uh, apply um, to have those opportunities. And so there certainly was, just from my own experience of market generalization, a recognition of just what possibilities that also included and a desire to kind of make them accessible to students who, who didn't have them, but who came from similar backgrounds to mine
0: what is your next project
4: so I um I've been kicking around a couple different ideas but one of the more immediate projects that I'm working on is connected to my scholarly work um, because I have a book contract with the University of Texas to write about um, race and visual culture in Latin America and so it's an opportunity for me to get back to Argentina the kind of place that started it all for me, at least on my intellectual journey. And so I put Argentina, Peru, Mexico, and Brazil in this comparative frame and look at different forms of art ranging from colonial portraits from the 18th century to contemporary photographs and media images to think about the place of people of African descent in Latin American art, which has has always been a really remarkable subject because unlike the U.S. that didn't pay very much attention um, compared to Latin America to people of African descent. Latin America really always featured people of Latin American, people of African descent in their their earliest portraits, including images of the conquest. You'll see people of African descent depicted alongside Cortez and Pizarro. They they were there from the the earliest arrival of, of Spaniards and play a really important role in the language that those images speak and what they have to say about Spanishness, about indigeneity, about blackness, about status. And so that's the, the story that I, I try to tell in the book. But it's really interesting because I got the contract for that book around the same time that I got the contract for um, Beyond the Shores and wrote a proposal that was very conventional and scholarly that was moving chronologically and kind of moving around different regions and focused on particular images. It had a very rigid structure, but over the course of writing Beyond the Shores, where I was pushing the kind of bounds of genre, I ended up deciding that I want to do more of that sort of writing, even in my scholarship. So it's a different book than the one I initially proposed. We'll see if my editor <laughs> is okay with that. But <laughs> at least for, for my own sake, it's a it's a more fun book to write. And I think more representative of who I am now that I've written Beyond the Shores than than I would have written it. Oh, yeah. at another point
1: in time. Nick. <laughs> Hi, I uh, <clears throat> I just would like to tout your book very oh, much.
4: <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much.
1: <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. Um, uh, two things come to mind. One is <clears throat> uh, it's interesting how authors sometimes uh, make up fictitious characters and place them in a real setting. Uh, country to country to country you took real characters <clears throat> and put them into country by country um, and it's very effective and having listened to your uh, presentation in this group um, uh, your eloquence is is wonderful um ha- that being said <clears throat> back in 1963 at Harvard <clears throat> uh, all life academic was divided into three things. <clears throat> Natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. Mm-hmm. And your book um, falls nicely into humanities uh, with a touch on social science. I was a gov major. So okay. here's a kind of a softball. Um, <clears throat> I think um, Winston Churchill once said, <clears throat> uh, democracy is the worst system there is except for all those other systems. <laughs> and I just wonder how you might comment on that.
4: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that the the same can be said for, how can I put this, um, I think there are people that I wrote about in the book who would probably say the same about the US. Um, Even after having the experiences that they had while they traveled, that they had a stronger sense of commitment to the country of their birth, the country where their parents and their grandparents spoiled. Um, Paul Robeson, I think is an interesting example of that. He has this interview that he gives in the 1960s, with this Australian TV program, that basically the interviewer was asking him, like, you know, if, if the U.S. is so bad, why don't you move to Africa? Especially because Africa is decolonizing right now; there might be interesting possibilities. Don't you feel more aligned with the people and their their future there? And he, you know, says, "There's there's so much of the U.S. that belongs to me. Yet, you know, my grandparents toiled there and they built the country. And I I think that." was an important thing to capture in the book, because it would be easy to say, well, you know, there's all these other places that, you know, treated you so much better, but that one kind of flattens the terrain of the experiences that the people I follow in these other places that, you know, thinking about the Soviet Union, thinking about France, even a place that, you know, really looms large in people's romantic imaginations, Paris, especially now is in the midst of um, rising white nationalism, right? And there are a lot of Crises around the treatment of migrants. London, in England, is another place um, that is being exceptionally hostile to um, people from other places. And so, I think that that quote about democracy kind of applies to lots of um, different contexts and and conversations in terms of just the, the the ways that people kind of resolve to to make what they know and what they feel you know belongs to them work. So. That's, that's at least, you know, an initial reaction to to that statement.
1: Nice answer.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. It's really been uh, wonderful.
4: This has been such a pleasure. Thank you all for your incredibly thoughtful questions and just for your time. I know we've gone a bit over, but this has been so fun. And I <laughs> hope that I was able to, to answer everyone's questions. Um, but please also, I think my email is included on that that thread that you sent earlier, Kent. So please feel free to, to use it. Um, and yeah, this was such a pleasure and, and so fun.
0: Okay, thank you and good luck. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Bye, right. everyone. Bye. Thanks a lot. That was Tamara Walker. Her new book is titled Beyond the Shores, A History of African-Americans Abroad. And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, plus you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.